you know, it's not Karachi, this is not East Pakistan, this is not India, this is not Ireland, this is never records, this is never records, this is never records. And certainly me. In the crash. In the booth with never records. Nice. With 13 minutes. Across the ocean, from New York to Liverpool to Derry, we are the ones who believe that through joy we can forever live. Thank you, Never Records. I'm sorry I touched your microphone. <laughs> You are not listening to Never Records on Blue Gold Radio 99.9 FM. Welcome to episode 70 of Never Records Radio. My name is Ted Riederer, and I'm an artist and musician who lives and works in New York City. From the Mississippi to the River Jordan, I've recorded musicians, poets, historians, analog snobs, anyone who wants to cut a vinyl record for free in my conceptual art project, Never Records. The Never Records archive continues to grow. To this date, there are over 500 recordings from more than seven cities around the world. And I've got two more Never Records in the works. One in Kansas City this September, and next year, the great homecoming back to New York in September 2019. Over the last year and a half, we've worked our way backwards through the Never Records archive, to the beginning. The very first Never Records, which took place in an abandoned tower records near Union Square in New York City. Let me describe this next recording to you. Ryan Sparks, New Orleans-based writer and editor of the literary zine Southern Glossary, said it best. The first Never Record store opened as part of a no longer empty multimedia art occupation of the former Tower Record store in Manhattan. Before the internet transformed not just the delivery of music, but the way we discover albums and decipher their lingo and rate their worthiness. Tower Records was there to supply an infinitely diverse demand the legendary supply. Curated coolness on a massive scale couldn't survive as a business model, but Ted Reederer refused to believe that the spirit of record stores, whether they were chains like Tower or independents like yesterday and today, was bankrupt and in need of liquidation in the digital age. With or without a ringing cash register, we still crave the opportunity to share the unknown and the unexpected groove. Never Records exists as an idea and philosophy, but also as a physical location that facilitates face-to-face encounters. It's open, albeit with the regular hours, to anyone with a teenager's eager heart starved for new sound. You can read more of Ryan Sparks' descriptions on the Never Records website, neverrecords.net. With only five weeks to set up the show, I relied heavily upon my friends. During installation week, I was never alone. Around the clock, the community of artists and musicians I had found in New York worked with me side by side to pull off the massive installation. 
Ethan Minsker was one of those friends. The founder of the art collective, The Antagonist Movement, he marshaled a team of soldiers who helped me construct the stage, record racks, and front counter, and help with logistics. For over a decade, Ethan and The Antagonist have provided me with this kind of support and inspiration. I could never have survived in New York without them. So today's episode is all about The Antagonists. An accomplished filmmaker, Ethan sent me a bunch of videos he recorded during the run of Never Records back in 2010. I'm going to mix this audio along with some of the songs from the performers that played during The Antagonist Showcase on January 30th, 2010. We're going to kick off today's episode with an interview Ethan filmed with No Longer Empty's founder, Manon Sloam. Please forgive the background noise. We're actually building the shop behind her. Hi, I'm Manon Sloam. I'm the curator and co-founder of No Longer Empty. No Longer Empty is a curator-led organization which places exhibitions in vacated storefronts throughout the city. The site specificity of each exhibition is really important for us. We take, like this Tower Records, we take the history of the site and create an exhibition around about what the space was. People have said pop-up gallery, we're totally not that. We're an ongoing organization that creates curated thematic exhibitions in spaces throughout the city. And then we create attendant programming as well for children's workshops, panel discussions. Here we're going to be having bands, all related, of course, to the theme. The idea came to me actually one day I was walking along Madison Avenue, probably May of last year, and just storefront after storefront was closed. And I thought I started thinking about the implosion of the economy, the, the, the way iconic institutions, the banks, car factories were collapsing. And I thought about doing an exhibition called Empty, which not only reflected on the emptiness of spaces, but the kind of lies on the hollowness on which the Gilded Age had been based. And then when I thought about where to do this exhibition, it became completely apparent that one of these empty stores would be a great place to do it. After the very first exhibition we did, we started seeing the value of being in such a public space as a storefront that it didn't have the barriers of galleries, institutions or museums. And people felt completely comfortable coming into the spaces, asking questions, interacting with the curators and the artists. And so we sort of see it as a new paradigm of public art, an alternative to museums, but certainly as an addition to the art experience that the public's been offered.
coffin, flowers on your grave, and your soul can't be saved. There ain't a thing you can do, got my evil eye on you, evil eye on you, my evil eye on you. Oh, 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 oh. You are not listening to Never Records. That was Daddy Long Legs with her 2012 track, Evil Eye Radio. Frontman Brian Hurd played Never Records Showcase back in 2010, along with my friend Bradley Dean. This showcase took place in the middle of the Never Records installation on a stage vividly painted by the artist James Rubio. The showcase was hosted by comedian Julian Stockdale, along with David Fleming and Eric Wallen, and featured performances by Misty Chamberlain, Brother Mike Cohen, Richard Allen, Matt Madley, the band All Up In Arms, and the amazing chiptunes musician from Harlem, DePants.
You are not listening to Never Records Radio. That was DePants with his track Triborough Bridge. Harlem's DePants is what is known as an 8-bit or chiptune musician who hacks into Nintendo Game Boys to make his self-described abrasive hip-hop and Latin-flavored dance punk. The chiptune movement is quite popular and was brought to Never Records by Jessen Gerardo, the 8-bit antagonist. Armed with floppy disks and zip drives, he creates art that robot archaeologists in the future will one day refer to as an autistic triumph in human development. Brilliant. Let me describe this next recording to you. One of the antagonist movement's longest-running events is the Writer's Night that used to be hosted at a bar called Black and White on 10th Street between 3rd and 4th Avenue. I used to attend regularly because it was a great place to be inspired by the fearless readers who perform there monthly. The Writer's Night introduced me to Richard Allen, an East Village treasure. Here's the soundtrack from a short video that Ethan made about Richard, which includes a clip from his live performance at Never Records. I'm really lucky Ethan did so much filming, because believe it or not, I didn't record anything at that very first Never Records. Hello, this is Ethan from the Antagonist Art Movement. We are walking down Broadway with Richard Allen. Hey! He's a writer from the Antagonist Art Movement. We just did an event today at Never Records. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Richard Allen, one of our uh, senior writers here at the Antagonist Movement. I liked it. I, like I said, I was a little apprehensive about going into the daylight and someplace that wasn't a bar to read, but it went over really well. The installation's amazing. Ted and everyone did a great job with it. You know, I'd like to do more of these, actually. I did some shopping at Tower Records. Their vinyl selection, it wasn't so good. I usually wound up at Academy or uh, Bleaker Bobs, mostly Bleaker Bobs. But it's it's great to be back in this space because, you know, it's been taken over. An amazing installation has been put in of a mock record store, which it's one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. But it is kind of strange to be reading in a record store that's, you know, a defunct record store on Broadway that I haven't been in since, you know, I was buying their bad selection of records, I suppose. However, the one thing I can tell you is my father wasn't cool. I certainly didn't think so in 1974 when I was 10. It was at a smoke glass dinner table in early December of that year that the old man made the announcement that he was taking me to a concert for my birthday. Alice Cooper ice cream? With my tube sock legs swinging under my chair. The response is usually, oh, I didn't see you, I'm sorry, which is a crock of shit. <laughs> Depending on my relationship with the acquaintance who passes me by in the street and ignores me, I would expect some level of engagement. My definition of level of engagement could be at the maximum level, which would include both parties stopping in their tracks, followed by a greeting incorporating a hug, kiss, or handshake, a few minutes of conversation, acknowledgement of the next time we would see each other in a social or work setting, ending with the initial greeting of a hug, kiss, or handshake being repeated before parting ways. A minimum level of engagement while acquaintances pass on the street would include both parties while in motion making eye contact and a polite greeting of hello through either body language like the wave of a hand or the nod of a head or a verbal hello. 
I don't understand why some acquaintances of mine think they can pretend not to see me without consequence. <laughs> During most of the 1990s, I worked at Sounds, a ma and pa record store on St. Mark's Place. One of my tasks was to purchase used CDs from the customers. One day, a good-looking young man came in selling used CDs. He said he needed lunch money. I examined his CDs and gave him cash. After he left, my boss informed me that the good-looking young man was the younger brother of tragic folk hero Tim Buckley. We would eventually discover that this was Jeff Buckley, the son of Tim Buckley, who had just moved to NYC to make music and hopefully score a recording contract. Jeff Buckley became a regular at Sound, selling his CDs for food, guitar strings, and other CDs. I actually witnessed him purchasing two of his dad's CDs one day. He didn't like to talk about his dad, but he was comfortable in front of the sound staff to purchase recordings by his dead dad that he obviously didn't have in his collection. He used to invite me and my co-workers to his early New York gigs, which was a year-long residency at Chenet on St. Mark's Place. I was the only sounds employee to show up and watch Jeff Buckley alone on stage with his electric guitar play originals and covers of Leonard Cohen, Nina Simone, and Bob Dylan. Jeff and I bonded on our Bob Dylan obsession, and he would often send a Dylan cover out to me during a performance at Chenet. I was there when he recorded Jeff Buckley live at Chenet, which became his first official release. Even though he had scored a recording contract, Jeff Buckley needed dough and continued to sell his used CDs at Sounds. He was such a good-looking guy that all my co-workers, men, women, straight, gay, and bi, had a crush on him. Did I have a crush on him? No. Did I pay him too much for his scratched-up CDs? Yes. In 1994, Jeff Buckley's debut full-length CD, Grace, came out, and in the liner notes, among the thank yous, is a thank you to everyone at St. Mark's Sounds. That's me and my co-workers. Now that Jeff Buckley had a recording contract with the Columbia label, he also had access to unlimited promo copies of anything on the Columbia label. He asked me if there was anything on Columbia that we could use in the store that would give him more than just lunch money. I said, how about your new CD? The next day, Jeff Buckley walked into my store selling a 30-count box of Jeff Buckley Grace and walked out with $150. <laughs> Jeff Buckley lived in the neighborhood, and I would often run into him at Burritoville or Bar None, among other places, and we always had a friendly exchange discussing Bob Dylan bootlegs. One night, sometime in the second week of May 1997, I was on my way home from work around 11 p.m., walking north on 2nd Avenue towards 11th Street. <laughs> the extra-wide 2nd Avenue sidewalk was empty as I noticed a lone figure walking towards me. As the figure got closer, I realized it was an acquaintance I had known for six years, Jeff Buckley. As we both hit the same block of 2nd Avenue across from St. Mark's Church between 10th and 11th Streets, I realized that a greeting was about to take place between two acquaintances. I had friends to meet, so I was hoping our level of engagement would be kept to a minimum. Once we were both in greeting distance of each other, Jeff Buckley looked the other way and pretended he did not see me. As our shoulders practically brushed, as we walked by each other. I could not believe it. He saw me. He definitely saw me. We were the only two people on a very well-lit New York City block. I was dumbfounded, and I thought we had a relationship of sorts. I could not believe that a six-year acquaintance of mine, who just happened to be Jeff Buckley, ignored me on the street. To myself, I muttered, 
I hope you die. I hope you die a violent death. I hope you die a violent death tomorrow, you fucking cocksucking asshole. I hope you fucking die. <laughs> Two weeks later, Jeff Buckley went for a swim in the Mississippi oh, River and never no. came out. If you know me and pass me on the street, say hello. You are not listening to Never Records. That was Brother Mike Cohen, reading during one of the Antagonist Movement's Writers' Nights at Black and White Bar sometime during the first decade of the 21st century. Let me describe this next recording to you. While watching Ethan's videos, I came across a segment that made me pause. It's a short interview with my friend Arturo Vega, and I forgot it existed. When Arturo passed away in 2013, I scoured my computer and photo albums for images of him. So it's incredibly special to have this footage. He's talking about his contribution to the installation, a large colorful bulletin board with real and fictional band posters, artwork by Arturo, Jeremy Fletcher, and the painter Kurt Hoppe. I apologize for the audio because I ripped it from videos off the internet but it's really important to me that you hear this. Hi there, my name is Arturo. Uh, some people call me Artie. So I want to combine what is real and what is not. In a real unreal. Uh, to go along with the concept of Never Records, you know, I, I designed a, a t-shirt with a beard that says, Never Records, you are not listening. Uh, this was never here, this never happened. You know, real unreal. What is, what is not. That piece behind me is uh, mainly uh, Billboard. In a way, it's, it's, it's announcing also the work of other artists. Take 
you are not listening to Never Records Radio. That was Matt Madley, who performed on the Never Records stage way back in January 2010. Matt built Think Tank Studios in Hoboken, New Jersey, and has recorded music with Jesse Mallon, Don Fleming, Peter Bruin and John, Nancy Sinatra, and Pete Yorn. He's an amazing guy, and I was thrilled when he sent me some music for today's show. We've come to the end of episode 70, and the end of Never Records Radio for the summer. I'm going to take some time off for the birth of my son this August, and try to help my wife Rose as best as I can. Stay tuned this fall, because two of the biggest Never Records are yet to come. One in Kansas City this September, and the big return of Never Records to New York in September 2019. I'm planning on recording hundreds of more performances, and I can't wait to share them with you. Before I go, I'd like to share a short piece I wrote about Never Records New York. Practically every week, with the regularity of a parishioner, I visited Yesterday and Today Records in Rockville, Maryland. It was there where I communed with the spirit of punk, ska, mod, and rock and roll. It was there where I learned about politics, sex, existentialism, style, and fashion. Yesterday and Today was more like a social library, a meeting place for musicians and artists than a retail space. Never Records is my love letter to the record store. In the ruins of one of the last great retail giants of the end of the last century, a casualty of modernity and the Great Recession, we will reclaim the spirit of music and commune amongst the wreckage. Thank you for listening to Never Records. Above all, I'd like to thank my mother, Dorothy Riederer, and my wonderful family for their support. My dear Rose for putting up with all the madness and giving me love whenever I needed it. Dan Cameron for his faith. Manon, Asher, Stephen, Keith, and the entire NLE staff for giving me my first opportunity to develop Never Records. And above all, all of the musicians and artists that made Never Records what it is. There's too many to list here, but for a complete list, please visit neverrecords.net. This show would not be heard if it weren't for Scott Morfitt and Eli Cloud at Blue Gold Radio. He put Never Records on the airwaves with support from the UW Eau Claire Foundation. Have a great summer, everyone. You are not listening to Never Records. <laughs>